All right, let's go to work. Open up your Bibles, Genesis 41. Our chapter today is the longest one of the Joseph story. And it's, and, and it's the turning point in this story because up to this point, every, every page of Joseph's life has been, it was bad and it got worse. And it was worse and it got worser. And then it was worser and it got worsest. You know, like what I mean? And then finally in this chapter, all of a sudden, the, the, they turn the corner and it stops being worsest. It stops going bad and it changes direction. One of the questions that always comes up about Joseph's story is, how long was he in prison? How, long, how old was he? And, and so this chapter finally begins to give us some earmarks, some ways to figure that out some. So we know from chapter 37 too, right there at the beginning of the Joseph story, it says he's 17 when we meet him. In chapter 37 too, it says, at the age of 17, while pasturing his flocks, his father, you know, and so we, we know he's 17 right there. And then the next hint to try and figure that out is today in our passage, chapter 1, it says, and it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. So, you know, when many people say, well, how long was he in prison? Well, we know he was in prison for at least two full years, but we know it's longer than that. Our next hint is in verse 46. We're in verse 46 over here. When you turn over there and look at um, there, it says that now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. So now we have a sense of that he was 17 when we met him. And we really don't have a sense of how much time elapsed from the time that he, we met him. He got this really fancy jacket from his dad. And then his brothers took it away from him and sold him into slavery. We don't know how long that is. But we do know that um, it's been approximately 13 years from when we met him to this day here when he's standing before Pharaoh. And then also, we also get another sense of it, that by the time we end the chapter in verse 53 um, here, that seven years of the, the, of the seven years of, of plenty and the seven years of famine have passed, they have happened. So that first seven years of plenty has passed now, and we've entered into some of that year of famine. So we have a sense that he's somewhere between 37 to 40 years old at this point in the story by the end of our chapter here today. So we have that, that, that we could safely say, let's say that it was, it was, you know, he was 17, and, and over the course of two years, he gets a jacket, and he has these dreams, and he makes bro- enemies out of his brothers, and so on and so forth. And, and so let's just say that it took two years. We have a sense that he was in, in Potiphar's house as a slave and then in prison for the better part of 10 years, probably, somewhere like that. Now, because this chapter is so long, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to walk through it and kind of summarize it and pick out some highlights of it as we go through it. Um, today in our study. So chapter, chapter 41, verses 1 through 7, Potiphar has had two dreams all of a sudden. And, and if you've noticed the stories of, of this family, especially Jacob, Jacob, his father, had dreams. He had a dream as he was leaving the promised land and going to get off to his, his, his mother's family to find a wife. He had a dream coming back. And now here is his son who's had this dream you know, that all my family is going to bow before me. And then he's entered into a dungeon where these two court officials have had dreams. And now all of a sudden, the Pharaoh himself has had dreams. And so dreams have always been an important vehicle, an important part 
of Joseph's life and his family's life. So Pharaoh's had these two dreams that are very similar in nature. And I'll say that these dreams have a lot of symbolism in them. But for the purposes, our purposes today, for the purposes of time, we're not going to go into all that symbolism. But that would be a great study if you'd like to take that on for yourself there. So he, he has these two dreams and he shares about them. And in verse 8, we learn that the dreams are very upsetting to Pharaoh. He sets, uh, he sets out to learning their meaning, but there was no one. It says that, um, that it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled, so he called, sent and called for his, his magicians of Egypt and the wise men. And Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh had told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them. Verses 9 through 13, the cupbearer all of a sudden has his memory restored. After two years, if you, if you can remember, you know, the last thing we read that, J, that Joseph says to the cupbearer as he's released from prison, he says, please remember me as you, re, as you leave this place, you know, and as a point of rescue out of it. So two years later, all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And it's interesting that Pharaoh is disturbed enough that he's willing to listen to a Hebrew slave that's in his own dungeon more than his own magicians and wise men. That, that must mean he's pretty tormented. Because later on, when we go into Exodus, we find out that the Hebrews were loathsome to the Egyptians in every way. They wanted nothing to do with them. So in chapter 14 through 21, Joseph is immediately cleaned up. He's brought upstairs to the Pharaoh, and the dreams are explained to him. And Joseph makes this important statement in verse 16. There he says, it is not me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So he's been brought up. Pharaoh says, I've had these dreams. I understand that you can tell people what their dreams mean, so I want to talk to you about this. And Joseph goes, wait, wait, wait. You need to understand I'm not going to tell you what those dreams mean. God's going to tell you what they mean. He'll give you your answer. Now, it's interesting, a couple of things to make observations about here. Joseph doesn't allow the credit to rest on him. He's very purposeful to give it to God. He honors the one who's been giving him favor all along the way and has helped him to prosper in everything he's done. So really wise, great point, great, you know, mark that note in the margins that when he had the opportunity to honor the one who had been honoring him, he took it and he made sure he gave God the credit. And whenever Joseph speaks to the Egyptians about his God, he uses the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, which is mighty, creator, and sovereign. Really interesting. You're going to see throughout throughout this passage, this text, that there's a point being made that Pharaoh, you think you're divine, you think you know everything, you think you're all-powerful. And then there's all these subtle signals being sent back to him going, that's not the case. Matter of fact, Pharaoh, let me just tell you about my God just by his name. His name means sovereign. His name means creator. And you are not. And not only that, but when the text speaks of God's dealings with Joseph, when, he's, when it's talking about Joseph and God and their relationship, that's a covenant name, um, Jehovah. And it's redemptive in nature. It's where God is reminding Joseph of the promises he's made. He goes, this is who I am. I keep my promises. And then finally, the other thing I want to note is in verse 16, it's interesting that the New American Standard and some of the other translations say that God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
Remember what Pharaoh's problem was? He was very concerned and he kept waking up because of the nature of these dreams. The Hebrew word there for favorable answer is shalom. So he, what he says is, is that God will give you an answer of peace. Very interesting, I thought. I loved reading that. Verses 25 through 31, Joseph interprets the dreams. He follows the interpretation immediately with this plan to, to deal with the coming famine in verses 32 through 36. And then in, chapter, in verse 37 through 44, Pharaoh promotes Joseph to the second highest position in the nation. Everyone wishes that your very best idea would give you a promotion and a raise in your job, don't you? Well, you know, this is what happens to Joseph here. You know, he, in 37 through 44, Pharaoh promotes him. Verse 44, he says, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one will raise a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's a lot of authority. He woke up that morning in a dungeon, apparently unshaven and unclean. And by the end of the day, he's in a chariot and everyone answers to him. Now that's a change kind of, that's kind of like a a change in your day, in your life in one day, isn't it? Verses 45 through 57, he's given an, an Egyptian name. He's given an Egyptian wife. The plan begins to work. They store up grain for seven years. He has two sons who are born, and the seven years of famine begin by the end of the chapter. And in verse 45 there, the seals of authority that Pharaoh gives Joseph, he, in, in giving him an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife, he's in essence, you know, in Pharaoh's mind, he's, he's converting Joseph from Hebrew to Egyptian. In the name and meaning of his name is very uncertain, but his wife is identified as being the daughter of a powerful priest considered to be the greatest of the seers of the day. Isn't that interesting? He, here is Joseph, a Hebrew slave that was in a dungeon who interprets the dreams that his future father-in-law can interpret. And then he goes about in verse 41. He, he makes a royal proclamation about Joseph. He gives him the insignia of the office in verse 42. In verse 43, he makes the public acclamation of this is Joseph. In verse 45, he gives him a royal name. And in verse 45, he also, he legitimizes all of it with a royal marriage. In verses 50 and 52, he has sons who are born. And in the naming of the sons, he reveals that his outward appearance, maybe to many, has changed and looks very Egyptian but his heart is still God's and very Hebrew because both of the sons are given Hebrew names. And then another aspect of chapter 41 is the prominence that God has throughout the story. In verse 16, Joseph points to God as the one who interprets dreams. He just says, God interprets dreams, not me. And in doing that, you have to know that there's a a little dig in there somewhat that says, and neither do your magicians and all of your wise men. And then in verse 25, God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. So in verse 25, this is what he says. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same, and God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Did you catch that? We're talking to Pharaoh. We're talking to this king who says that I'm divine, and I'm sovereign, and I'm all-knowing. And then Joseph just said, 
and my God just told you what's going to happen. In verse 28, the same thing happens again. It is spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the matter is determined by God, and he will bring it quickly about. All of these little verses are very much positioning, rearranging the authority structure, the the sovereignty of the situation. Because Pharaoh sees himself as as sovereign, All of Egypt sees him as sovereign. And Joseph, the slave, the one from the dungeon, stepped into this court and said, but this is the real God, and he is sovereign. So verse 32, he says, God has decided this. It's going to happen, and it will happen quickly. And then verse 39, he says, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, catch this, I love this verse. Pharaoh says to Joseph, Since God has informed you, you catch that? By this point in the the chapter, now all of a sudden Pharaoh said, since God's already doing all this, he is acknowledging God's power. He's acknowledging what God is doing. He's acknowledging God's activity. He says, since God has informed you, I want to give you this job. Now, I'm not sure if that was what Joseph wanted out of all that, you know. But that's exactly what happened. Since God has informed you of all this. So all these interactions, all these mentions of God have been ones that are rearranging sovereignty and divinity. So here he is. Joseph says, God tells us about dreams, and God has told you what he's about to do, and God has determined what he is going to do. And in that verse 39, it's a huge admission that God has informed you and it wasn't me. Because I'm the divine one. I'm the one who knows everything, but your God has told you what's true and it wasn't me. So last week we talked about this Groundhog Day thing, right? You know, where, where the th- same thing kind of keeps happening in Joseph's story and there was these similarities that were happening. So I want us to look at those again. So there's three episodes in Joseph's life up to last chapter. And those three episodes had three authority figures in them. His father, Potiphar, and the chief jailer. And as we go through those stories, each one, in each case, Joseph is favored above all others in the story. So with his father, he's favored above his brothers. And with, his, and with Potiphar, he's favored above all the other servants in the house. And then with the chief jailer, he's favored over all the prisoners in the house. And in each case, he's also second in charge. I mean, he's the one that's running and telling the brothers what to do and checking up on them. He's also in charge of all of Potiphar's house. That's what he says to Potiphar's wife. He goes, I'm in charge of the entire house here. How is it that I would take advantage of you and betray my master? And then we learn the same thing true in prison again. He's in charge of all the prison. He's taking care of things. And in those last two situations, both those situations say have a similar comment where they say that... Potiphar and the chief jailer didn't have to worry about anything because Joseph took care of everything. And then finally, there's another thing that happens. In the story with the father, the brothers, he's innocent. And the story with Potiphar, he's innocent. And, 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 you know, and, and claimed falsehoods are made about him. And then in the case of, this, of his cloak there... His cloak was taken, it was dipped in blood, and it was used to deceive his father. And the same thing happens with Potiphar's wife. His cloak was taken 
and used to deceive Potiphar himself. The wife said, look what he did. I took his jacket because he was trying to rape me. Just look. Look what he's done. And then he's thrown in the pit. His brothers threw him in a pit and waited until the traitors took him. Potiphar threw him in a pit in jail, and the chief jailer left him in the pit. Now, in the closing verses of of chapter 40, we find Joseph in prison, a forgotten man. And in the closing verse of of chapter 41, it says that, that, that all the people of the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Look at the the change in what's happened here. And today in our... I'm sorry, did I get ahead of you, Larry? Ah, I got ahead of you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my notes moved on me. Okay, stop and pause, let's reset, okay? And chapter 41 is different. And it's sort of like that joke about country music, where like, you know, if you played country music backwards, you'd get your dog back, you'd get your truck back, you'd get your girlfriend back. But that's kind of what happens here with, with Joseph. His life gets played back in reverse. And in Joseph's story, you see, his story starts out with his father, and he tells his father, he goes, I've had a dream, and the dream is so incredibly clear that everyone knows what's being said. Everyone knows what's being said. You're telling us that we are all going to bow to you. Well, no one likes that idea. So his father sends him away, go find out about your brother's. See how they're doing. And he has a mini-day trip. He arrives. His brothers hate him, and they strip him of his coat. They throw him in a pit, and they deceive their father about it. Now, here we are in chapter 41, and all of a sudden, this is beginning to get reversed. He's pulled from the pit now. He's pulled out of the dungeon. He's given a new coat. He's cleaned up, and instead of being sent away, by his father to go check on the brothers, being sent away by his brothers to be sold into slavery, being sent away by Potiphar to go to jail. Now he's being brought out. He's being brought in, and now all of a sudden he's hearing dreams, and these dreams are not clear. These dreams are not easy to understand. These dreams are difficult, and no one is explaining them except him. Except him. And in all these situations, he's always been, the one thing that's different is he's been second in command in all these situations, all of them. We started out, this is what I was saying a moment ago, we started out in the closing verse of chapter 40 with him being forgotten and in prison. He's gone through numerous heartbreaking tragedies where he's been innocent, falsely accused, and punished. And now all of a sudden, we find ourselves closing chapter 41, and it says, all the people of the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. That is a change of life, is it not? In this chapter, He was brought in as a slave, and he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. One would even say in the earth, given the nature and the scope of the kingdom of Egypt. In verse 43, it says that every every knee should bow to him. Isn't that an interesting statement? Verse 43, look at it. It says, "And, and, and he had him ride. Pharaoh had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and then proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. 
He was bound and confined, and now he rides in a chariot. He had no authority and was under the authority of anyone who wanted to exercise it over him, and now all of Egypt is under his authority. We've talked about several times in the context of the Joseph story about how Genesis is a book with multiple layers throughout it. And at times they seem to be divergent or going in different directions, but that is never the case. They're never going in different directions. They're all going in the same direction. Every story is. They're moving its characters in history step by step through the fulfillment of God's covenant of land and descendants to Abraham. That's the overarching story of Genesis. That God makes a covenant with a man to give him land and descendants. And that that land will be an eternal possession for these descendants. And that these descendants, that in these descendants, all the earth will be blessed. These stories are like roses along the path of a great journey. And while they're not the destination, they're intended to be smelled as you go along the way. But really, we're not talking about smelling the roses. We're talking about finding all these other stories along the way and learning from them. And in chapter 41, we, can, we've, we've, we have focused on how it looks for Joseph's story to unfold itself, to reverse itself. But it also looks forward. When you look at Joseph's story, it also looks forward. Because one day, Joseph's descendant would stand before a man of great authority. And Jesus would stand before Pilate and be questioned by him. And, and Pharaoh gave Joseph new life. But Pilate condemned Jesus to death. But in that act, Jesus gave us new life. Pharaoh provided Joseph with all all that he would need in the world. And Jesus would one day provide for his people all that they would need for spiritual life and eternity. You see that in Jesus, we have the ultimate, the fullest fulfillment of the covenant of God made with Abraham. And here you have Joseph's story that is a pointer toward that. It's a little bit of a peek at how that's going to happen, what it looks like. So in Jesus, we have that, that the greatest fulfillment of the covenant of God made with Abraham. It, it, God promised Abraham that his descendants would bless the world. And it wasn't that all of his descendants would. It was that a descendant would. And that descendant was Jesus. And that in blessing the world that way and in providing for that blessing through Jesus, what he did was he made it possible to redeem a mankind that had rebelled and wandered and ran away. And he made it possible for mankind to be redeemed back to himself. And that is the fullest blessing. There is no greater blessing than that. And so it is in Jesus that all the world is blessed. And Joseph so many times is spoken of as a figure, a type of Jesus. And so today, as we look at the the turnaround in Joseph's life, from being totally separated, totally having nothing, to the end of one day, all of a sudden, having everything more than anyone else, you can say that the same thing is true for us. Because In Jesus, we also are totally broken, 
totally dead in our sin, totally separated from God, with no hope at all of ever escaping, quote-unquote, that pit, that dungeon. Joseph was in a dungeon. All of us who are dead in our sins are in a dungeon. There is no point, no hope of escape. And yet, one day for Joseph, by the end of the day, he had all the riches of the world at his disposal. And the same thing is true for every single Christian, that all of us, at one time or another, were in that dungeon, dead in our sin. But Jesus entered our lives. And in that moment, we went from being dead in our sins to being alive like we've never been before. In that moment, we were given promises of eternity that we've never had before and that no one else can have apart from Jesus. There are so many similarities. So many similarities. And so our story of how we came to Christ is not different from Joseph's. Joseph was stuck in a point in history and time, one man, one nation, physical riches. We are people who were in a dungeon, dead in our sin, redeemed by Christ, and given eternal riches for all of eternity. That's something for us to consider when we think about how is God going to fulfill his promise to Abraham? Abraham didn't have that ability to see forward. And we have the beauty and the great treasure to be able to look back and see how it was fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for Joseph's story. Um, Not that he, and as while we get to enjoy the lessons of escaping sexual temptation, of enduring trials well, all these things that they are lessons in and of themselves, But the greater joy, the greater truth of Joseph's story is that he was one more step in the story of the Redeemer coming and taking us from our pit, from our dungeon, and rescuing us and giving us eternal riches, spiritual riches that we cannot even fully fathom. And then in this life, we will probably never take it full advantage of. And so we eagerly wait for that day when we will experience those riches, those promises, in their fullest, with you and you alone. Thank you for Joseph. Thank you for sharing his story with us. Thank you for the promises you make to us and the fact that you're still keeping them. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.